Hey listeners, Dennis Wisco here. I am on a quest to forge partnerships, and one particular area that needs great attention is the public-private partnership. As the name suggests, a P3 is a partnership between the public sector and the private. And you might be thinking, well, doesn't the public sector always engage in some sort of contract work with private individuals or companies? So isn't that a public-private partnership? In episode number 62, we featured Amy Ford, who at the time was the chief of advanced mobility for Colorado DOT. Now she serves as the director for Mobility on Demand Alliance at the Intelligent Transportation Society of America, or better known as ITS America. Here, she clarifies the difference between private contract work and a P3. The difference in this is what they're doing. So the traditional explanation of a P3 is that you are working with a private partner to design, build, operate, and maintain, and sometimes finance a project. And in doing that, there is a, there is a transaction, if you will, between the public and the private partner, such the private partner believes that they can make money on this particular deal. The public partner is looking with a private partnership to do a couple things. Maybe it's expand the project to do something we couldn't do, like finish it, like on our US 36 corridor, or also help alleviate risk. So, you know, in return for our payment, if you will, they say they'll be willing to take on the risk of designing the project, to build it, to operate it, to maintain it over time. And so a public-private partnership is a very contractual relationship that lays out the terms of how you share risk, how you look at financing, and how you make a project happen. How you make a project happen. Six choice words. In a data-driven society, you no longer have to guess what your customers want. Companies and agencies possess so much data that this data is the new commodity that will forge more public-private partnerships. And as a quick side note, tune in next week when we feature the managing director of Deloitte's Future of Mobility practice, Mr. Rashik Zarif, where we talk about more of the data that is being talked about in these public-private partnerships. On today's episode, we hear from Managing Director of Planet M, Amanda Roraff. Amanda is forging partnerships in her home state of Michigan and is finding practical solutions that serve a niche audience. So stay tuned. Before we get to today's episode, one quick announcement. So now you're here again knocking at my door. Listeners, I know what you want, and that is to have a one-on-one relationship with yours truly. Yes, my wife, she's a very lucky gal. Well, your Christmas gift has now arrived. I invite you to have a chat with me by visiting wiscoweeklypod.com and opening up our website chat feature. Perhaps you need access to prior guests or you want to speak your mind about a particular topic or you have questions about buying a car or selling an old one. We can now have that one-on-one chat. 
visit wiscoweeklypod.com and click on the bottom right chat button and you and I can get connected. Also, maybe you are seeking a female's advice on cars or you are needing some financial advice. Well, you can also connect with our co-host and estate planning attorney, Kelly Cruz. So, visit wiscoweeklypod.com and find that chat button on the bottom right and interact with us on a personal or professional manner. Now, let's get into the show. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Mabuhai, bienvenidos, vitaite, willkommen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I'm your host, Dennis Wisco, and this is the podcast on the new business models for the mobility of people and goods. Now, before we get started, I have to give a shout out and a huge, huge thank you to Dandelion Chocolate, who has been gracious enough to let us use their conference room in their new store that has just opened up at the Row in downtown LA. Uh, I know my guest here is gonna be talking about some chocolate. I'll be talking about some chocolate. I love some dark chocolate specifically, and they source a lot of their chocolate, as they say, from bean to bar. They're based up in San Francisco, so be sure if you're in Los Angeles, uh, come by Road Downtown LA. If you're in San Francisco, jo- go check out their their main quarters. And also, since Christmas is just right around the corner, check out their website dandelionchocolate.com and look to order one of their advent calendars. So, okay, let's get to today's show here. So, uh, we're recording at the Comotion LA at Row in, at Row in downtown Los Angeles. Comotion LA brings together the brave new leaders of the mobility revolution, and certainly our guest today is one of those brave new leaders. So let me tell you something personal about myself first. I often receive the compliment that, "Oh, you don't look forty; you look much younger." And yes, humbly, I do. And that's not, you know, I'm just being real. Okay, now. Even though I may not look 25, I look probably 35-ish, right? And so it's a great compliment. And I'm lucky to have some good genes that have blessed me with some young-looking skin. But where I'm cursed is also from my genes. While I will probably look this way for the next 15 years, my joints are that of an 80-year-old. And I have no one to thank but my parents, as well as my occasional inflammatory food items such as chocolate, but... You can't, you can't be an angel forever. So listeners, I have arthritis. All right. Let me be real with you. I have arthritis. And while it doesn't severely or negatively affect my life now, it is annoying to wake up in the morning and struggle to walk downstairs because of my joints are achy. So quality of life for me is a big issue. And I want to do all that I can to aid the private and public sector to address this quality of life issue in a reasonable, affordable, and innovative way. This mobility revolution allows us to rethink how people with achy and painful joints can move. And as a matter of fact, there are 54 million Americans who actually suffer from arthritis. Today's guest has scaled the ranks of Planet M. Planet M aims to connect the global mobility ecosystem with the state of Michigan. My guest began her career with Planet M in October of 2017 and served as their operations manager. Fast forward two years later, and with her background in marketing, communication, and event management, she now serves as managing director. 
In her short time at Planet M, my guest has contributed to nearly 4,000 connections between corporate startups, investors, and others totaling more than 29 million, let me say that again, 29 million in facilitated revenue. She's a fighting Spartan from Michigan State University here to share information on accessible and inclusive transportation, men, women, and children. Please welcome to the show the Managing Director of Planet M, Mrs. Amanda Roroff. It is a pleasure to be here, Dennis. Thank you for that wonderful and warm welcome. Go green. Go green. Well, actually, funny you say that here. <laughs> is it, you know, actually here, let's a quick digression here. Is it, is it kind of contentious in the office when there's, you know, you're, you have go green and go big green and go big blue? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, this Saturday, uh, in a couple of days from now, there is oh, going to it's be the rivalry. It's the rivalry. Yes, oh. yes. So, un- not unfortunately, fortunately, but I'm here in LA, which I'm really thrilled. But tomorrow, had I been back at the office, everybody's asked to wear their spirit oh, no colors. Way. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. However, you know, being a state agency, we're located in Lansing, our capital, which happens to be Michigan not state. too far where Michigan State is located. So there's a lot of people that bleed green that that work at the MBDC. Secretly, I kind of have to side with Michigan State because one of my all-time favorite basketball players is Magic Johnson. So he, he is a Michigan State alum. Uh, anyhow, before we actually get to the, the, the substantive part of our conversation here, um, how can people follow you, Amanda? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Amanda Roroff, and you can also email me at roroffa1 at michigan.org. Great. And listeners, I will put her contact information on the episode page. So accessible and inclusive transportation. I know that this is something that um, has been around around a while. However, in this mobility revolution, it's causing, it's causing us to rethink what, what can be done and to provide services um, to this specific audience that we'll define in a second here. So I was hoping maybe we can start with telling, if you could tell us why is accessible and inclusive transportation meaningful to you? Well, thank you for asking that. So I am the daughter of a boomer, a boomer parents. Um, my grandmother, um, who would be today 99, I think now, uh, but she passed away a couple of years ago and I was, you know, with close by with my mother when we had to decide to take her keys away. She no longer could drive and getting her around. So it started to become very personal at a, at a pretty young age for me. And now that my mother is uh, of a certain age, I won't reveal that for on her for her benefit. You're a good uh, daughter. <laughs> she would kill me. <laughs> um, but that said, uh, one ailment that she has, which makes me think about why this is so important, is she has an eye condition that requires her to have an injection in both eyes directly into the cornea every anywhere from four to six weeks. Oh God, I'm cringing right now. Oh, oh. I've taken her a couple of times. I can't look. Oh, <laughs> I God. can't do it. No. Okay. Um, but she does swear that when one of us come in the room, the doctor's a little more gentle and he does a better job and oh, doesn't so hurt as much. The so checks we and have, balances, yeah, we yeah. have to go in the room, uh, which I learned that the hard way. My sister's like, you have to go in the room with mom. You can't wait in the waiting room. That's why she wants you there. I didn't know. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, so clearly afterwards, I mean, common sense, she's not able to drive afterwards. So 
but it is a bit of a burden. So, you know, all of her friends are of a certain age as well. So she has to ask for a ride or my sisters or I take time off of work to make sure we get her to and from and get her a meal and make sure she's set up because she can't really do anything for about 24 hours. So it makes you think about shared vehicles, paratransit. Um, but the reality is, is that even if she were comfortable with Lyft or Uber, say, she can't see her phone to even right. order it. Um, so how can there be integration with the healthcare system so that there's kind of multiple, as you use the word, checks and balances, so that there's multiple ways that the patients are being supported um, so that maybe it's part of the receptionist at the front desk. There's a system in which she has authority to be able to call you know, the vehicle so there's more on-demand service because the I think if we all know, and it's not too secretive, but traditional paratransit, you might have to schedule uh, an appointment days in advance. Right. Um, and it's not on demand. So they drop you off when it's convenient for them. They pick you up when it's convenient for them. There's no app to tell you where the vehicle is and routes. So you just wait and you wait. And what might be a 30 minute appointment, now you've been spent your whole day, you know, waiting around uh, to, after you're dropped off and you need to be picked up. So it, it's just very personal. And I, as I watch my parents begin to age and they're, you know, very mobile and they get around and they're in good shape now, but fast forward, maybe 10 years, maybe not so much. Well, and, and you guys are doing some fascinating things in, in Michigan. And one of the things that you guys have uh, partnered together with the, with the Michigan Department of Transportation is the Michigan Mobility Challenge. Can you describe that challenge? Absolutely. So the first year that we were in the second year of the challenge, okay. and I can okay. tell you about that a little bit too, but the first year of the challenge, uh, this really came down from our former um, governor at the time, uh, Rick Snyder. And uh, before he was leaving office, he said, you know, I really want to do something unique and different and first of its kind to really move the needle in mobility. Uh, at that point, the Planet M initiative had been around for about two years. We're now about three years old. And he was able to secure about $8 million from the legislature. So so we got together between the governor's office, Michigan Department of Transportation, and Planet M, and sat down and said, what can we do to really move the needle? And what we decided was is that we would do a challenge around solving mobility issues for disabled, senior citizens, and veterans. Um, so what we, Excellent. Yeah, All three yeah. groups, which uh, I, there are, those are near and dear to my heart. So please, yes. Yeah, so really, really unique challenges mm -hmm. and, a, and basically um, a body of citizens that maybe not have not had enough attention. So essentially what we did was we held uh, an all-day uh, forum, if you will, and we had at least 150 people in the room and we had advocacy groups. We actually had veterans, we had senior citizens, we had people that were in fact disabled. Uh, we had municipalities, we had DOTs, of course the state, we had industry, which I think was really important. So industry partners who are interested also in solving some of these challenges. So that throughout that day, we heard from these advocacy groups and the people themselves of what some of these challenges are. So we, between MDOT and the governor's office and Planet M, we took all that information together and we built out an RFP. Uh -huh, so uh -huh, in the RFP, uh -huh. you know, we thought maybe we'd get, say, you know, 15 or 20 proposals. We received more than double um, hmm. of that expectation. Like uh, specifically in Michigan, in the Midwest, or where, where did these uh, applications come from? All over the world. Wow. All over the world. Okay. Some really unique partnerships that came together to help solve these. So we had a Canadian company partner with a global uh, P3, you know, so we have uh -huh. a, a global firm. 
Um, and they ended up being one of the awarded companies and they're now deployed up in the upper peninsula of Michigan, which um, is a is an area that has, you know, some kind of you know, urban canyons of, or not urban, dense uh, areas where you don't have as many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had essentially a husband and a wife who worked out of their home, who were essentially dispatching vehicles to take people to and from doctor's appointments with no real efficient way to do that. Um, and you know, the people, you know, when you live in an area uh, like that, that's a bit more rural, you know, people do get to know each other. So basically Move, uh, a company out of the Montreal area and P3 and a few other partners came together and developed a platform custom for these entities up in I think it's three counties actually that okay. it covers okay so pretty diverse area of, so they're now able to much more efficiently distribute vehicles um, to people's homes on demand and, and, and wh- who's this company then so the company is move oh, and so move is the actual company that's that has providing they okay. provide the pl- okay. building that so they already had a platform as a matter of fact it's kind of a unique story I was at the shared use mobility summit a couple of years ago and this company move there's so many mobility companies with the word move in it so i should clarify it's m-u-v-e out of of, uh, canada and uh but they pitched at this pitch competition and i was so impressed it's just these two co-founders anthony and peter and i watched them pitch unfortunately i had a plane to catch so i didn't get a chance to talk to them so if you fast forward um i think it's about two three months later is when we were holding this industry forum and it was the week before and i thought gosh i bet that company move might want to be involved in this project so i i literally hunted them down i googled i tried i hunted down an email address for anthony sent him an email and i said you don't know who i am <laughs> what i do but i swear i'm legit i work for you know in the state of michigan on mobility initiatives i saw you pitch at some sea I think this is something you might want to, to be at on Monday. Mm. And literally, this is Friday. Wow. <laughs> one of the founders got on a plane. The other one got in his car because they were coming from two different parts of Canada and spent the day uh, at that event on Monday and ended up partnering, finding a new partner there with P3. And together, they created this new platform up in this very rural area part of Michigan, solving paratransit needs for people up in that area. That is fascinating. And so listeners, this is why, you know, she's forging 4,000 connections <laughs> and, and and facilitating $29 million in revenue. You have to get creative sometimes. You do have to get creative. Now, you know, so this actually leads me to a, a kind of another subject uh, when it comes down to catering services to elderly, disabled, and, and, and veterans. And that is what you had mentioned, P3s, public-private partnerships. And you're mentioning how MOVE engaged in one And I think this is extremely pivotal to really discuss the nature of a a P3 and the roles of each. Certainly that's what's going on at this conference at Comotion LA. I'm curious though, through your eyes on how you view the roles of public and private in solving this transportation problem of the elderly, the disabled and the veterans. So we all have a, a role to play. Um, But we truly believe that it's just not one or the other. It's an entire ecosystem that needs to work together and find new ways because we all operate. Private industry works very different and moves at a different speed, like, say, a global automotive OEM versus a tech startup versus a state agency like the Michigan Economic Development Corporation or the city of Detroit. So we all have very different procurement processes and approval processes and legal uh, areas um, and certain things we have to overcome and certain approvals. So, but we truly believe that the state, through using some public dollars, can help seed 
some of these projects and bring to the table and leverage those funds with private industry and other partners um, in the area. So we don't believe that we are here to fund all of the projects and that's not what Planet M is intended to do, but we are a convener. We're intended to be, and that's why we kind of live over the whole ecosystem, is kind of just navigate and, and be kind of the puppet master sometimes, you know, in order to bring the right people together, to see an opportunity, bring us together, and create a compelling business case as to why this is important and why we should all invest together. You know, you're, you're going to be facing some competition here, too, with, with Los Angeles, with, the, with this recent launch of the Urban Movement Lab. And... You know, when that was being announced earlier today by Mayor Garcetti, seriously, my first thought was, this is what Planet M is actually doing. This is, they're, they're recruiting companies and investors to Michigan to deploy autonomous technologies, electric technologies, and now LA has launched one. So it'll be curious to see how this competition will go between you guys, no? I'll, I'll be honest, I don't look at it as competition. Okay. You know, I don't, I think in this space around mobility, there's very few experts, and I use air quotes uh, to use that. I think this is such a new industry and we're all learning yeah. as we go. Um, we happen to create a model that's working. Um, um, but we've been at it for about three years now, so we've been at it a little bit longer. And we're also at a point, too, where we're kind of reevaluating our overall strategy and where does the future, where should the future take us? Because mm. uh, things have changed in the last couple of years since we launched this initiative. So, frankly, I look forward to learning from this new initiative here in the Los Angeles area. And as a matter of fact, I, I ran into somebody uh, not long ago here at the Commotion event. Um, and we exchanged information so that we can talk more about the initiative that they're launching. And what I think is really interesting, too, about what they're doing is they have the airport involved, they have the Port Authority involved, they have you know private sectors involved. So I think they've got the right people at the table. So one of the things you had mentioned with regards to the speed, um, private companies work at different speeds than the public sector. Then again, even with different departments and agencies, everyone's kind of working at different speeds. One of the things that uh, I've come across in my research, which I'm curious to hear what your thoughts would be on this. Are you familiar with con law? Does I'm that not, sound familiar? No, no. So it's completely fascinating. I went down a rabbit hole and, <laughs> and discovered this. So that happens every so often. Right? Um, it's uh, it's it's the certificate of need. It started out as a as a federal legislation, and it has trickled down to a lot of the states. And so the certificate of need. This is from the National Conference of State Legislators. Certificate of Need programs are aimed at restraining healthcare facility costs and facilitating coordinated planning of new services and facility construction. Now, so why at the end of the day is, is a certificate of need or a CON uh, needed? The basic assumption underlying CON regulation is that excess capacity stemming from overbuilding of healthcare facilities results in healthcare price inflation. So, as I'm understanding it, it's, this, it's the idea that you don't want two hospitals competing with one another right across the street. You can just, you could suffice with one hospital and therefore help control prices, keep them as low as possible. Well, I, I can only tell you that um, this has not come up. Um, perhaps Michigan Department of Transportation might have a different viewpoint. Um, but I think because we're not building a new or creating a new paratransit, we're actually just trying to make the existing assets more 
efficient. And with the end result, two things, twofold, and regarding the point about hospital systems, and I do know that one of their biggest costs is missed doctor's appointments due to lack of transportation. Okay. Okay. So that's one way that we're helping. And we're really just the facilitator in trying to find new ways to help streamline what exists today and make more on-demand services so that the individual, the senior citizen, the veteran, uh, the person who might be disabled trying to get to that appointment, they benefit. And that's yeah. really what we're striving toward. I should mention too, there's another pilot as part of the $8 million Michigan Mobility Challenge uh, with a Michigan company called Pratt & Miller. So Pratt & Miller mm. has built a, a small, relatively small- Sounds uh, like a legal firm. Yeah, <laughs> it's not, okay. surprisingly, no. Pratt & Miller? Yes, it's an innovation firm. Uh, okay. And they're doing some pretty incredible work. And so they've deployed, they were targeting ven veterans uh, and the disabled. So what they have is an autonomous vehicle um, and they wanted to better understand by working with the end users um, what types of features on the vehicle are required and what needs to make the whole process and that experience better for mm. that individual. Mm. Um, so they deployed just a few weeks ago, they deployed that particular uh, autonomous shuttle on Western Michigan University's campus. Uh, obviously in Michigan, and it was just running for a couple of weeks, but they partnered. There's a very high population, surprisingly, of veteran students and disabled students at that particular university. So they were able to access those groups, get feedback from those groups. I know in particular, there was actually one student who was visually impaired, who worked with Pratt & Miller to develop a solution. So there was some sort of an audio, or audio um, uh, sound that came through so he knew when he was at the, the stop the wow, bus stop to super be, to be picked up mm -hmm. so when they were able to you know get feedback from the riders and so on so just ran it as strictly a pilot for a couple of weeks but then Pratt Miller wants to take that information back so they can build out an autonomous shuttle that's actually users or more user friendly for all I mean I think that actually brings up then the the idea of adoption of the of these new modes of transportation right and and certainly especially if we go back to our parents, you know, that's always going to be the challenge. I mean, I think my dad barely started, he, he barely just discovered Uber like last year, right? You're, you're going to have these services that will help them. It will aid in their quality of life, but the, the education, the adoption of it is always going to be a challenge. How, how are you going to solve that problem, Amanda? <laughs> oh, that's a big one. Oh, you want me to solve that too? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think the number one barrier is trust. Um, and not trust just in senior citizens, right? Um, I, I think there's a younger generation who does trust technology more so than perhaps, you know, a 40 or 50 year old, and which is still very different from maybe a 70 or 80 year old as mm. far as the understanding and adoption and trust of the technology. So. Um, you know, one of the ways that we are starting to think about this, and I don't have the answers, but recently in the city of Detroit, um, the Harvard Kennedy School, we did a Harvard policy scrum around autonomous vehicles and senior citizens. Mm. Um, I actually was part of the breakout focused on trust, so relevant question, Excellent. so you yeah, didn't even yeah. know that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> And you know, one of the things we were talking about is one way, mind you, I'm sure there's many, many ways, but one way that potentially we could do that is by building more of a coalition of the cities, of the communities within just say starting with maybe Southeast Michigan or perhaps the whole state of Michigan. But to back up even a little bit further and where this idea came from before I get to that point is 
In my role in working with cities um, and helping them kind of determine what they need and connecting them to industry to help bring solutions to them mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and have them be able to share their problems, we find that a couple of cities really have their act together. Okay. Um, city Give me an De example, please. City of Detroit. Okay. So two years how ago. About a, how about a city in California? Uh, <laughs> I would say San Francisco is okay. doing a decent job. Okay. I mean, city of Los Angeles, of course. I, I realize that congestion and uh, air quality are some issues that certainly need to be resolved. But I know that you're working towards some bigger visions. Yeah. I mean, I know you're working toward fully autonomous uh, deployment during the Olympics of 2028, which is really cool. Um, so it's, there's some really interesting mm -hmm. things that are happening. But I think the point is, is that there are some cities that kind of get it. Mm -hmm. They understand that the future of mobility is going to change the way cities should be designed and built and what our infrastructure looks like and, and how we need to plan for that. But I will tell you, I'm going to throw out a number, 95%, maybe 99% of the cities and other communities don't. Right, they don't really right. understand. So something that we've been toying around is creating some sort of a, a city alliances group already with the cities that are doing some really interesting things and start sharing those best practices. Um, and even just, as you know, there's many, many startups and companies out there that tell you they're doing the greatest thing ever. Um, and how do you differentiate between which is the great, in fact, the greatest thing ever? So just information sharing, you know, which companies are you talking to? Which events should I be at? You know, where can I find some, you know, really good content to learn more about this sort of thing? And then share that information with some of these other communities and bring them online. So as these other communities trial potentially some pilots, like have them come onto this larger group and we build that, that group out. So it's like this learning. So I guess the idea really back to trust is if you create this network of communities starting this information share, I think it starts to build potentially trust within communities because they see that government is taking this very seriously. It's not a haphazard deployment, not like we didn't think it through, we just thought we might try something. It, the idea is, is this is a really well thought out uh, deployment and partnership and had the funding sources and the scaling and so on. So in through this process, we believe that there might be some opportunity there to build trust uh, in communities. You know, it'd be really interesting, and this is combining church and state. Because I think about, you know, you talk about building trust in a community. Well, I don't know about your parents, but I know my parents and a lot of their friends, they're Sunday churchgoers. All of a sudden, what, what if all of a sudden the, the education of, of, this, of these modes of transportation were somehow integrated into the church? Well, and there's, I mean, there's even to that point, right? So churches have oftentimes have their own private vehicles. So there's been a mm. lot of talk about those, a lot of downtime with those vehicles. Do you know any companies actually that are operating within churches too? You know, like Not necessarily within churches, but companies kind of going back to like move a platform yeah, right. that can allow them to put their vehicles on. See, that would be, be yeah, yeah, that would be yeah. actually really and you interesting. you actually are involving church directly, potentially. Right, right. Yeah, yeah that would be interesting actually. Um, so one of the things uh, I thought was pretty interesting about your bio, Amanda, was, and again, I don't know, th this strangely may be tied into what we're talking about already, but maybe not. Um, do you know where I'm, I'm going to go with this? I, I might, I might. So in all of your bios, it's serious, like every single one, I, I did a little bit of research. <laughs> I did a little bit. Every single one of your bios, there's always a mention of you having some passion and affinity of rescuing and adopting dogs. I'm, I'm curious, first off, why is that? Second, is there a market for <laughs> autonomous vehicles and puppies? 
dogs, animals? Well, I don't know if we have enough time to discuss this whole topic because I love this topic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But my, I... I, let's just let's go back. I'll tell you the really kind of quick version. So when I was young, we didn't have any pets. Um, two of my sisters, I'm the youngest, were both allergic. One day when I was probably in, I don't know, maybe 10 years old or so, okay. my mom let us go by ourselves to get our hair cut. So my sister was and driving. Came home with the dog. We came home with a dog. <laughs> there was a sign on the side of the road that said free puppies. And we literally did a U-turn and went back and we're like, oh. And we came home with a dog. So for weeks, my mom kept saying, that dog has got to go back. Your sister's really allergic. You can't have a dog in this house. And then, you know, we'd be like, oh, can we just, we have this going in maybe tomorrow and maybe in the weekend. And next thing you know, she lived to be almost 16 years old. Uh So uh Morgan, that was little Morgan. But so I've always had this, you know, affection for animals. Um, But then as when my husband and I got married, you know, I thought, okay, I don't want shedding. I want to keep the house clean. And that was before I had kids and realized like you can't control everything. (laughs) Um, So we first, our first dog married, we spent way too much money. I don't even know how we afforded it. I think we did a payment plan, but we bought a Portuguese water dog uh, before President Obama did. So just for the record. Okay. Uh, and um, give me a ballpark range because I don't know anything about this. Like, what's well, a ballpark range for buying let's a dog? Just put like this that? way: I've, I've been married twenty years, so twenty years ago, I think the dog was two thousand dollars. Okay. So yeah. in today's yeah, dollars, a it's a pretty penny, mm-hmm. right? And we're newlyweds; we didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. Um, just buying our first house. So anyway, so fast forward now, I, so we ended up, you know, so we had the dog. So um, we, when my kids were young, I really thought it would be an interesting thing for them to experience birth like live birth, right? So one day there's this um, animal adoption that's in our community. They posted on Facebook that there was a dog that needed a foster home and the dog was pregnant. (laughs) And I did not tell my husband. So I called them up and I met her at the vet. And (laughs) turns out I didn't really pay too much attention. So the dog is not only pregnant and probably due within a couple of weeks, the dog is hairless. Okay. You know, she, maybe another episode we're going to do is marriage <laughs> tips 101 with you. So I have some great dog stories. Anyway, so long story short, I literally texted my husband and said, there's this desperate situation. This dog needs, it's pregnant. I still didn't tell him it was hairless. We have to foster this dog. And he's like, oh my God, we don't, what do we know about dogs giving birth and the whole thing? I said, the adoption place, they said they help us. So give us all the supplies, the whole thing. So, and I'm going to tell part of the story that my husband's going to really be angry at, but I think it's worth putting okay. it. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. So anyway, so when he discovers that it's a hairless dog, I think he might've used some vulgarities and, uh-huh. you know, in how he described his feelings toward what did I actually do? Um, so pregnant and hairless dog, which is not a cute combination. Let's just, <laughs> let's just be really honest. Um, so Gracie. So anyway, so we had Gracie about three weeks and we were going to bed one night and we were reading some books about how, you know, when the dog's, you know, what do you do? What's your role as a human and animal we're going to bed and i said to my husband something's off she's pacing she's acting really strange and it was late and we were tired and he's like she's fine so he scoops her up puts her on his chest and, ha- and, and she her had wa- her litter her water broke on my husband in our bed so the whole reason for even doing it was so the kids could experience birth the kids went to bed they didn't see anything so anyway that started a very long road of fostering and adopting okay. uh, several dogs so i currently have three dogs at home i have fostered successfully uh probably about 125 150 dogs over the period of time most of wow. them do go on and, and move on to their their new homes uh, but we have three dogs because two of them were foster failures so 
I do still have Gracie, the hairless, Chinese crescent hairless. I, yeah. ha- I mean, at that point, she was part of the family. Exactly. Uh, and then I have um, Mikey, or Big Mike, and he actually comes to work with me in my office in Detroit. He Fantastic. loves it. He's part of the crew. Uh, and then little Stella, which is, uh, she's the bad dog. Well, look, part of the reason why, I know it's an odd question to ask on a, you know, quote unquote business type podcast here, but I guess part of the reason why I was curious about how this is woven into your life is... Look, I, I, I look at you, Amanda, and you're the managing director of Planet M, a very influential organization. And if we're looking at accessible and inclusive transportation, I want to know that what you're doing, it, there, there, is, there is meaning in what you're doing. And obviously, that kind of comes from your personal experience. And that's why to hear your passion for adopting dogs, and this is a terrible analogy, right, but to equate dogs to elderly, right? You you have to take care of these two different beings. You, they require care. They require um, doctor's appointments. And so while maybe this is another discussion in solutions for the animal kingdom, there are solutions that need to happen that are happening now that would cater towards elderly and disabled and, and veterans and whatnot. And so it does actually, and, and I really mean this, I, I thank you for looking into these options for making the calls to move to um, form these partnerships because i do think back to my parents and you know they as as they are aging now too i want to be able to educate them so that they can develop trust in in technology that when they do have to attend a doctor's appointment that's you know as opposed to making you know, scheduling a call and having to call me, call my sister, call somebody for them to be taken over to the doctor's office. Maybe there's other solutions that are out there. And certainly you are in a much better position to foster that type of solution than I am. So thank you in advance for the work that you're doing. Well, thank you for that. No, I appreciate that. Well, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. Again, if you want to follow Amanda, uh, check out the episode page. Amanda, uh, as you look into the new year, um, do you have anything in, let's say, quarter one of the new year that people can expect uh, that would be coming from you or your office? Uh, A couple of things. But one thing in particular I should highlight is in June of 2020 in Detroit, Uh, For those that are kind of on the auto show circuit, um, you're probably aware that the Detroit Auto Show has historically been held in the month of January. Uh, This is the first year, and I think maybe close to 40 years, it's moving to June. Um, So we're taking advantage of that opportunity. So I mentioned the $8 million Michigan Mobility Challenge. This year's version with our new administration, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, uh, we have a new challenge out. So it's focused on deploying autonomous vehicles in downtown Detroit open to the public in June of 2020, all operating under one single app. So just a couple weeks ago, we announced uh, five winners, if you will. Um, the winning, by the by, I say winners, each of those winning teams are multiple entities, including universities. And uh, we will have 18 vehicles all bustling around downtown Detroit, moving people all over to major points of interest in June of 2020, all free. Um, obviously, we're going to target uh, Detroit Auto Show attendees, of course, uh, but it will be mm. open to the public. So again, going back to that trust piece, yep, part exactly. of it is exposing people and let them experience uh, so they can begin to build that trust with the technology. Yeah, that's great. Do you, June, do you know when in June? Uh, the two middle weeks of two June. Two middle weeks. Two middle weeks, Eesh, yes. I don't know if I'll be in town. Oh, come on. <laughs> we hope you can make it. I, yes. if, if, if it's definitely on the... 
it has to be more towards the first half of June. Otherwise, well, let's see I know if we can I'm make something work. We'll okay. talk. Okay. Right. Well, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. As we end every episode, cheers, prost, lechaim, kipis, nastravi, salut, kampai, mabruk, tutsin, gambe, yamas, nastarovie, to the customer experience. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly. A big thank you to Mrs. Amanda Roraff. And also a shout out and thank you to Michelle Grinnell and Maria Violette, who made this episode happen. Don't forget to tune in next week as we feature Rashik Zarif from Deloitte. So stay tuned for that. As always, follow Wisco Weekly on any popular social media channel. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Hope you have a wonderful Christmas coming up and see you next week. Mm-hmm.